millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to The Race Car on Sin 19.7 every Sunday. At 3 p.m., we talk politics, current affairs, pop culture with a twist. Yes, you're listening to The Race Guard on Sin 90.7 FM, and I'm Ahmed Yusuf, your host for this afternoon's show. And before we begin, we'll be making um, an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the Kulin people as the owners of the land on which we gather. Um, and pay respects to their elders, both past and present. Islam was never ceded, and the process of colonization, occupation, incarceration, and genocide that began over two centuries ago continue to this day. You're listening to our one-hour show where we chat politics, current affairs, public culture with a little bit of a twist, as we, as well as wrapping up the most thought-provoking issues in Australia for the week. Today we look at gentrification. That's going to be our feature. Um, we're going to be talking about what happened during the week where a few... Caribbean nations asked Britain for reparations, as well as talking linguistics, does your accent matter? And we'll be uh, talking about the Parramatta shooting. And don't forget, you can get involved in all the discussions by texting on 027-767-767 or tweet us using our Twitter handle, at The Race Guard. And my co-hosts for this weekend show are... Poppy Perot. Amina. And our special guest for this um, uh, for this show is Amir Rahman. Yes, Amir Rahman. And uh, I guess before we uh, we have a chat with Amir, we're going to be playing his uh, infamous reverse racism clip. I'm just slowly getting it up right about now. This is just me fumbling. Uh, how has everyone's week been? Busy, 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 busy. You don't care, Ahmed. You're just buying yourself some time. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I think he's, he's trying to be subtle. Uh, I, I, I do hey, here's some natural uh, radio banter. Uh. Yeah, no, th- I guess this is what we need until we can put it up. All right, now here it is. I don't like my comedy. A lot of white people don't like my comedy. A lot of white people say this to me. Hey, Amir. Hey. Get on stage. You make your jokes about white people. You say white people this... White people that? What if I did something like that, huh? What if I got on stage and I said, yeah, black people are like this. Muslims are like that. You'd probably call me a racist, wouldn't you? And I say, yeah, yeah, I would. Yeah, you should, you should never do that. That's, that's bad for your health. They're like, well, you do that, Amir. You do that. You get on stage, you make your jokes about white people. Don't you think that's a kind of racism? Don't you think that's... Dun-dun-dun. Reverse racism. I said, no. I don't think that's reverse racism. Not because, not because I think reverse racism doesn't exist, right? If you ask some black and brown people, they'll tell you flat out there is no such thing as reverse racism. I don't agree with that. I think there is such a thing as reverse racism. And uh, I, could be, I could be a reverse racist... If I wanted to, uh, all I would need would be a uh, time machine, right? And uh, what I'd do is I'd get in my time machine, I'd go back in time to before Europe colonized the world, right? And uh, I'd convince the leaders of Africa, Asia, the Middle East, Central and South America to uh, invade and colonize Europe, right? Just occupy them, steal their land and resources, set up some kind of like, I don't know, trans-Asian slave trade where we exported white people to work on giant rice plantations in China. Just ruin Europe over the course of a couple of centuries so all their descendants would want to migrate out and live in the places where black and brown people come from. But of course, in that time, I'd make sure I set up systems that privilege black and brown people at every conceivable social, political, and economic opportunity. White people would never have any hope of real self-determination. 
Does every couple of decades make up some fake war as an excuse to go and bomb them back to the Stone Age and <laughs> say it's for their own good because their culture is inferior and just for kicks subject white people to coloured people's standards of beauty so they end up hating the colour of their own skin, eyes and hair. <laughs> if after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of that I got on stage at a comedy show and said, hey, what's the deal with white people? Why can't they dance? That would be reverse racism. That was Amir Rahman's reverse racism. So Amir, uh, fumbling with the mic there, but anyway, um, I guess why, why did you choose to make that joke that night? What was your mindset, I guess? That was actually a, a kind of an accident. Um, that joke was from my solo show, um, but we had a friend filming. That was one of our last few of Brown Planet shows, uh, and I just I had a friend who happened to be filming that night, and I was actually on my way towards quitting comedy. So um, I just thought, okay, I'll just throw that joke in at the end of the show, uh, and we, you know, so I had it on tape, and then again I put it online because I thought I was going to quit comedy. So. That's how it ended up online. Uh, I guess um, now this is the interview process. Now this is where we're going to grill you. Um, what, what what is I guess wh- how is your comedy different to others? Because I don't think there are many people that speak so openly about race and and racism in their comedy without being I guess that generic Russell Peters kind of ethnic humor. So why did you go um, I guess around I guess that path? Um, I think it was just based on sort of the comedy that I liked growing up. And I did like Russell Peters, you know, like when I was 17 and I heard that first Russell Peters album that leaked online. I mean, I thought it was fantastic. Um, But, you know, I'm not opposed to, you know, people talking about their own culture or, you know, joking about how they grew up or their parents or their families and stuff like that. Um, But for me, it just wasn't, you know, as a writer like that's just not what came to me naturally and also like I just as much as I can enjoy that comedy the idea of doing it in front of people and having white people laugh at you know an accent that you know someone in my family or someone who's not white uh might speak in like I just I could not really handle that as a performer so I've just never done it um I've got a question as well I'm thinking about comedy as transformation and you know with the reverse racism video for instance we actually link that video to people who say that reverse racism exists. And so I think for me, um, I'm more interested in the idea of um, transgression through accessible means, through mass media, and I suppose you embody that. Um, do you see that um, as a transformation, as a me- means of transformation? You mean as a means of changing people's Yeah, pretty ideas? much. Uh, not really. I, I'm not sure. Like, I think the popularity of that clip is from people who enjoy it and already agree with it. Um, and people tell me, like, very rarely, like, that they've shown it to someone that made them think a different way. But I think, especially the way social media operates now, I think people um, people are consuming content that's already catering to what they already think. Um, and I think it's very difficult to change... Um, it's very difficult to change people's opinions anyway. You know, like I've, I've, I've had a political background a long time before I did comedy. Um, and yeah, so to think that a, you know, three and a half minute comedy video is going to change people's minds is, you know, it's kind of reaching a little bit. Um, I think what it does more is, is for people who are sick of having that argument it's, you know, it's some release and it's, you know, it's a, it's a good way to end a Facebook argument. It's just, you can leave that video there and that's it. Will more three-minute videos change anything? <laughs> no, no. But, I mean, they'll, people will enjoy them. That's, I mean, that's what comedians have to do is, yeah, like, I mean, I think as much as, you know, there isn't a lot of comedy necessarily that's, you know, political or conscious or whatever you want to call it. But I also do see comedians that just take themselves way too seriously and, like, really, I think, kind of overstep the mark in terms of how influential they think they are um, just because they're saying something political. And I think you just have to recognize at the end of the day you're, a, you're an entertainer right. and people enjoy your type of entertainment. Um, and real political change takes, you know, a lot harder work by a lot more people over a lot longer time. Do you feel, um, I guess, 
that people cling to people like yourself who are comics or, or entertainers that speak openly about race and racism and, and I guess social issues and make make you um, people leaders of a movement that you've not particularly um, tried to be. <laughs> no one's made me a leader of a movement. No, no, but in the sense but, that trying but to yeah, yeah, like, point people, to you. Again, yeah, I think people cling to stuff that validates how they feel. You know, I did when I was growing up. I clung to music and film and comedy that, you know, made me kind of feel normal. Things that validated my experience. You know, the majority of what was on TV or in films or music was just alien to me and made me feel more alien. So the things that I found that appealed to me, I, you know, I kind of clung to extra hard, I guess. Um, I've got a question. So... Um, in terms of your reverse racism clip and, say, sharing that to white people and white people, um, you know, agreeing with it and saying this is what we are like, do you think white people distinguishing themselves from, you know, saying, oh, you know, this is what we're like but I'm not like that, is that problematic in a sense? Uh, I, I mean, I think that's just always, that's always going to happen, right? Like whenever you have any kind of s- systemic oppression, whether you're talking about misogyny or homophobia or whatever, like... Anyone who's part of the oppressing group that recognizes their privilege or their role or whatever, you know, th- you can either just be upfront and say, look, I'm part of this. I'm always going to be part of this. I have to do my best to minimize the effect that, you know, my social reality has on other people. And there's always going to be people who try to use it as a kind of currency of, well, you know, I'm not, I recognize this exists, so therefore I'm special. And somehow, like, I'm not, you know, as a man, like, it, that doesn't affect anyone anymore. As a straight person, it doesn't affect anyone. As a white person, I'm not like the other white people. I'm the good person. I'm the good one, yeah. I'm the the good ally or whatever it is, yeah. Uh, I guess um, something that's really interesting to me is where do you go next with, I guess, your comedy? And what are some of your aspirations, I guess, like you see people, um, I guess, like Ron... Ronnie Chang. Ronnie Chang going to The Daily Show and and other comics that were around you when, when you were coming up. Where do you want to go with your comedy? Thank you, Ahmed. Thank you for pointing out my uh, relative failure compared to my... Uh, I, I'm not trying to point out your relative <laughs> failure. Like, I, I know you're, you're Hey, very... so the small people you started with that are like way more famous than you now. <laughs> well, I, I'm not trying to do that. I, I'm just trying to ask you some hard-hitting questions. As yeah, a journalist, look, that's my look, job. Honestly, like, I, you know, people ask me that. And I think if you choose, like, if, you, if you're like me, you make a choice to, like, be a political artist, you insist you're going to say certain things, you refuse to do other things, then, you know, you just kind of have to come to terms with the fact that that's not very profitable, right? Entertainment is a profit-driven industry, uh, and it rewards people who reflect its values. You know? And if you decide, well, you know, screw that, I'm going to, you know, represent all these other things, then you just have to be, you know, realistic. It's not a great, it's not a great business model. I, I remember you telling me a few months ago about... Um, um, an unknown. I'm not going to name the publication. Unknown publication asked you to write a a common piece about, say, the parachuting. You send that piece to them, and they don't want to publish it because you put uh, a different, I guess, political um, observation yes. and, and critique to it. Yes, CNN asked me. To write. <laughs> CNN International asked me to write about the uh, Charlie Hebdo shooting, and then after I wrote it for them, they said that uh, the guy who commissioned it said that his editor said that. It, it sounded like it was justifying terrorism, and and like things like that, right? Um, I guess that stops you from um, being that mainstream comic um, that people think you either should be, or um, the other like uh, comics that you started with are now. Do you think? Do you think that you? I guess as a person who says I've got these certain political principles that I won't necessarily like, um, not necessarily sell out, but compromise myself yeah and and again like you know you are just automatically filtered out like there's no there's no shortage of you know early 30s comedians or actors do you know what i mean like you know for a casting agent or a writer or a director like like why go through the hassle of working with someone who is going to be difficult or wants changes in the script or you know they you know is threatening because you know you know they're not just going to say yes to everything Versus, you know, 10 other people who are willing to to do it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and again, like, I think you just have to be realistic about that's that's how entertainment works. Like, no one's there to do artists a favor. Like, you either do the job or you don't do the job. 
Definitely. We're going to be taking a music break. We're going to be playing, um, I guess, a, a music selection by Amina. So I'll let you announce the next track, Amina. Um, is that Welcome to the Party by Bamboo? Yes, it is. Yeah. Oh, that, see, you know, we didn't even discuss this beforehand. She just sent me some some songs, and I just put in that clip and see that synchronicity. So Bamboo is one of my favorite rappers. Incredible Filipino American artist. All right, we'll play that now. I don't know. I just don't date white guys, which is really weird. But like, it's just like, it's not necessarily a decision I made. It's just something that just sort of came, and like, I've noticed a pattern, I guess. <laughs> um, do you think the pattern is, I don't know, like a good, a good thing for you? It's worked in your favor? Yeah, it's, it's worked in my favor, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, are you fascinated with people from certain cultures more than others? Like, um, I like the Australian people here. They're really nice. Yeah, yeah, I like the Australian people. But maybe that's because they also actually migrated mostly from Europe. So, yeah, there's a bit of a connection already there. Not most people have, like, grandparents come from Europe and stuff. So they have something more yeah. to talk about. Do you have particular preferences of certain culture groups over others? Um, yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what are they if you feel comfortable with? Uh, yeah, I feel a bit more comfortable around Europe, people from Europe or Aussie people, yeah. Or if they at least speak properly English or, yeah, if they look Asian but they, they are from Europe or their parents are European or Aussie, then it's a bit, a bit more comfortable. <laughs> what kind of thing we have to consider whenever we want to become a relationship first? Uh, I don't believe in religions, but anyway, I mean that the background of the religion is important because, for example, a Muslim cannot become friends with a Jewish. Okay, so I don't believe in religions, but anyway, but it has an effect. The other thing is the one of them is religion. The other one is the nationality. For example, in Iranian, cannot. Uh, there are a lot of cases, but you know, it's rare. But you know. Actually, so the nationality, for example, an Iranian cannot uh, marry to, for example, I don't know, maybe Chinese. So they have some conflict. So I think two things that I wish. I'm Gary Foley, and you're listening to The Race Car. Yes, you're listening to The Race Car on Sin 90.7 FM, and I, uh, we're going to be talking about the week that was a segment where we highlight the things that happened in the week that interest us. So, um, early this week, Prime Minister David Cameron visited Jamaica. Thought it would be a, you know, a nice trip, see one of these former colonies and, 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 and talk to the head of state. But little did he know that Prime Minister of Jamaica, Portia Simpson-Miller, brought something um, to Mr. Cameron's attention that he didn't think would be, um, I guess, spoken about. Just um, trying to find that clip now. See, if I was more organised, I would already have it done. Um, yes. I brought to Prime Minister's attention the issue of reparations, indicating that Jamaica is involved in a process under the auspices of the Caribbean community to engage the UK on the matter. Cameron didn't particularly like the response by Portia. I don't think uh, reparations are the right answer. But the purpose of my visit is to look to the future. And uh, what future does that mean? Uh, so, what do you think about uh, reparations for slavery and, and colonialism? Should it be happening, uh, Amina? I think they're long overdue, for, personally. I don't think there's a possibility of going into the future when you don't address the past. When you have a past that is laced with a legacy of slavery, colonization, um, native genocide, and to ask for those people to look forward, it's almost as if to allow that trauma to re-traumatize and to resurface without addressing the roots of it. Um, I think it's a way to get out of accountability on the part of the UK and the British imperialist machine, if you can say. I'm a should when we think about reparations, normally people will say, "Well, you know, uh, the Jewish people were um, were compensated for um, the the Holocaust, which was a horrible, horrible event." And when people talk about slavery and colonialism, people normally say, "Well, I think it's time to to forget about the past, look to the future, onwards and upwards." What do you say to that? Uh, yeah, I, mean, I agree with everything uh, Amina said. You know, you hear the same thing in Australia if you talk about compensating the stolen generations or people who lost their land. Um, you hear the same thing in America when people 
you know, talk about reparations. Tanisi Coates wrote a massive, massive essay about reparations. I mean, at the end of the day, it's really a calculation of can we get away with not dealing with the past, uh, which, you know, all of these countries have basically operated on that premise for forever. They've, they've, they've gotten away with it for this long. So they think they can just continue. And the other thing that comes to my mind for me is um, the politics of pain. You know, whose pain do we recognize and whose pain is sidelined? So, for example, with ni- when 9-11 happened, you know, there are all these words like, lest we forget. You know, when we talk about Anzac Day and things like that, people always say, lest we forget. But when you talk about slavery and colonization, everyone says, we got to move forward. You know, talk about apartheid, we got to move forward. So who's afforded, you know, who's afforded... Um, relief, I guess, and who's afforded justice, who is afforded, um, yeah, just a justice and relief. And I think it's important to deconstruct that, I think. Definitely. I uh, spoke to British columnist um, Rennie Edo-Lodge about Britain's past and how we view um, them in relation to, to other countries. Why do you think there's this apprehension that ever that always seems to happen whenever discussions about reparations, about slavery or colonialism are ever discussed? Why do you think there's this inherent defensiveness, whether that be from policymakers, um, heads of state, or or just the general public? I, I honestly, I think you know, growing up in the UK, as I've, um, I think that British history is quite uh, revisionist in terms of. Um, its role in the world so we often learn about how Britain won for, uh, alongside the good guys but when there's not really like it's when you leave school that you have to seek out the education to um, understand Brit- Britain's inf- inf- how Britain has inflicted horror on the world and how we still live with the legacy of that today so I think um, you know part of the defensiveness is to do with um, you know, I think malice and vindictiveness, but also I think um, ignorance. Um, you know, people, you know, we might learn a little bit about slavery or we're, we're aware of it. But I know it was certainly until it wasn't until I went to university and decided, you know, on my own, you know, I decided for myself to go and learn a little bit more about it, that I really understood the horrors of, you know, the country that I'm living in today. I think particularly in some parts of the country where, you know, slave ports were, so like Liverpool and Bristol, I'm off to Liverpool on Monday actually, like you can really see how the wealth of the slave trade has had impacted these areas of the country. Um, you can you can see it in the architecture, you know, you can see it in, you can see it in the wealth of this city. And 200 years ago is maybe three, four generations. It's not, it's not very, very long. You talk about, um, I guess, the... Um, the wealth that's been acquired. You talk about how people assume Britain, at least at a like a at a I guess base level at school, to be the good guys. Mm. Why do you think there's a failure to when we look at like accumulatively um, of how slavery and colonialism was conducted, that people don't view I guess the royal family and 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 the British um, hierarchy as the way they view people who did similar similar atrocities like Hitler and. And, and others. Why do you think there's this gap? Again, I think it's because we have this like revisionist history here, um, and and you know when the head of state refuses to acknowledge um, questions about reparations from uh, his former colonies, he really does feed into that. I mean, you've just got to see the different the difference in the way that um, you know we as a country um, approach the Holocaust. You know. Never in a million years would the British Prime Minister tell um, British Jewish people to move on from the Holocaust. You know, never in a million years. Um, and, you know, I, I was just recently in Germany, actually. And you can really see um, how the Germany as a country is still atoning and still acknowledging its um, its place in that atrocity. You know, I went down to the Holocaust Memorial. So, you know... For some reason, David Cameron thinks that it's, uh, you know, absolutely fine to tell Jamaican people to move on um, from asking about reparations. And remember, it's not it's not just a random group of campaigners or, you know, academics or students or whatnot asking these questions. It's the head of Jamaican state and it's Jamaican journalists like. Um, 
also there there are countries neighboring Britain like France who who still get money and and um, on the benefits of colonialism. I think some fourteen African nations, as well as Haiti, up until recently, were uh, contributing and and giving uh, money to um, and resources to uh, France for those benefits. Why do you think these I guess conversations aren't widely had? I mean, what I learned in my um, very you know short university module about six years ago blew my mind you know that the british state chose to um, compensate slave owners and not slaves i think um recently in the past five six years you know in in part i think to do with the explosion of social media that had a little bit of a democratizing effect in terms of who was setting the debate and whose conversations could be seen like we're really sort of you know, I think we're going a little bit more back to basics in terms of like what we understand to be the black struggle. Um, you can't keep these like current conversations so contemporary without looking back at history, without looking about um, Haiti. You know, it's incredibly important to um, look at what they've been doing over the years. You know, Haiti was, Haiti's revolution was crushed, right? So I think that it's sort of incredibly important to, um, not just to, you know, because I said ed- education um, is the is the issue at the beginning of this interview, but it's only the first step. Like once we know, once we can fully acknowledge, I think Britain as a country, like um, the the role that it's played in um, global violent racist colonialism, um, we can actually then move forward to attempt to try and deconstruct that. Of course, David Cameron, as a head of state, has no interest in 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 that. I mean when the Conservatives came into power in 2010, like, you know, the the race equality agenda, at least politically, completely fell off the off the map. I mean, I was working at a race equality think tank um, around the time, in one of the first few years of um, this Conservative government. It, the, the, the Conservative government don't care. Um, you know, race is not part of their um, neoliberal agenda. And so, sadly, I think it's up to people it's up to people in britain not not the house of commons to continue to push this discussion forward um and you know you know we take a lot of inspiration from struggles that we're seeing all around the world um and sooner or later um the establishment are going to have to um, catch up with conversations that have been happening without them because it's time it's it's time for reparations i'm francesca ramsey and you're listening to the race card Yes, you're listening to The Race Cut on Sydney 90.7 FM. Um, that was Rennie Edo Lodge talking about Britain's past and about reparations and saying that we need reparations now. So, I mean, I think you were talking off air about something you'd like to talk about, transgenerational trauma. Right. Um, when a community or a people have been systematically dehumanised for a long period of time... It takes a lot of work to undo that trauma. It takes a lot of justice to undo that trauma. And part of that is reparations. But without, but without addressing that trauma, what you get is a genera- generation and generation of people um, who suffer the legacies of it. So, for example, we're talking things like poor health, um, violence at home, um, di- discredited when they report injustice. So I think part of... Um, the answer is reparations, and I definitely think that inter- intergenerational trauma is a huge issue, and it's something that we often don't imagine, something we don't often think about, and other um, manifestations of it, for example, like sexual violence through colonization. We have entire ethnic groups like Anglo-Indians, um, like Mestizos in Latin America and the Philippines as a result of this trauma, and they continue to live with this trauma as well. Um, I think that's something that needs to be addressed. Do you, um, have you heard of the term white privilege? White privilege? No, not really. What do you think it means? I wouldn't even know, no. What's Haven't got a clue. Don't know. Seriously. Privilege means being able to uh, go where you want without fear of being attacked um, or, like, persecuted for how you look. Yeah. Hey. All right, so, no, five seconds. Five seconds, good for it. All right, so, what does the term white privilege mean to you? What does what? White privilege. 
There is not such a thing, man. Not for me. Not for you? No, man. We are all the same. Blood is red. We are all the same. All brothers. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. What does the term white privilege mean to you? Uh, well... Privilege for white people, I guess. Yeah, so is this like racism kind of stuff? <laughs> well, I guess Centrelink. White privilege, I guess, is the kind of um, specialty or privileges that the white people have here. I mean, we are talking about the local white Australian. They're having, you know, having access to welfare, housing, and everything that is um, being state provided. I assume. What does the term white privilege mean to you? Um, wow, that's a that's a pretty hard hitting question. Um, I suppose white privilege is kind of a monopoly of power and ideas when it comes to things like business, politics, government, media. Uh, even things like the police and the military, dominated by people who all have uh, a collective set of assumptions that never get tested by the people around them. Definitely. Um, now we're going to be moving on to our next topic of discussion. Um, an unfortunate incident happened this week where a police officer was gunned down by uh, 15-year-old Farhad Khalil Muhammad Jabbar, um, and uh, the some here is a headline: the Daily, not a headline, the first part in a news story. The Daily Telegraph um, took to the story. Um, it says, "Quote: The teen terrorist who shot dead uh, shot dead a worker outside Parramatta Police Headquarters may have been trying to impress group that was already under investigation by counterterrorism authorities." Um, and and later the ABC. Um, broke some uh, some actually new updates saying earlier senior law enforcement sources said it appeared the teenager acted alone. The people, in quotes, people there at the mosque went looking for him after prayer. One source said there's a there's a fair bit of information that he acted alone. So um, I guess what I want to do now is have a bit of a comparison of uh, of how a, a shooting a few weeks ago was was um was reported in the states and um a oregon man um, a oregon white man a 26 year old white man killed nine uh killed nine people and the gunman asked his victims uh to state their religion before sh- uh, before before shooting his weapon and earlier in june dylan roof um who committed uh the charleston mass shooting um killed african-american uh, people um, in a church that was specifically a, a black church, and and I guess Poppy, we were talking about this a bit off air about how we phrase particular things in news stories and and in articles about people from particular minorities and how we describe them in in I guess in the media. Um, it definitely has a huge effect on how we perceive those perpetrators, and I think um, in some ways there's a risk of you know glorifying these shooters and making them making them famous so with Dylan Roof he committed you know he admitted that after the the shooting that it was a racially motivated act he specifically wanted to ignite a race war he wanted he killed black people for the sole purpose of you know killing black people because he thought you know because he thought they were they were below below white people but um there was a 
controversy around the time that um, when he was in police custody, there was photos circulating around the media that he was given a bulletproof vest and he was protected in a way, yet he had committed these um, awful, like, awful atrocities. And there are, you know, with, um, you could, because he is, you know, a young white man, there is, like, phrases, the phrases used in the media that he was a misunderstood child, that there was, you know, that, that he was mentally ill and that was used as a justification for this racially motivated act when really he was just, uh, you know, a, like just someone committing like a horrible act. Like he's like use, guys, using a guise of mental health doesn't justify what he's done. Definitely. Um, and commenting on the issue, uh, just bef- uh, commenting on the issue, Miss uh, Julie Bishop um, in the ministry said, and talked about radicalization. So we're certainly reaching out to leaders of the Muslim community, but working with the families at a grassroots local level, it's the families that will be a front line of the defense against radicalized youth. So we will be working very closely with them, she said. So I, I guess, I mean, why do we target communities and ask them, um, you need to particularly take care of your young people when you're being radicalized when, by all accounts, this is a young man who um, worked by himself and this is all an isolated, potentially an isolated incident. Marginalized people tend to be communalized. Women tend to be communalized. People of color tend to be communalized. However, people who are afforded complexity and individuality are those who are more privileged, people who are rich, people who are white. And this trickles down to the way how we discuss this issue. When we talk about this acts of violence and we target to a community, to a whole group of community of diverse people. What we're saying is they're all homogenous, and this is their problem that they need to fix it, as if to say there are no external factors except their otherness. Um, Going back to Dylan Roof, for example, he's typical of white people who commit violence, and it's not called terrorism because terrorism has racialized connotations. And even though he, like um, what happened in Parramatta, acted on his own, He's, to, he's, a still, he's still protected by that whiteness. He's seen as an individual. Um, he's given innocence. He's protected. And the use of mentally ill, and I really want to mention this because this is very important, mentally ill people do not cause violence. It is violence that is usually perpetrated against mentally ill people. I think by using this rhetoric to protect white people, particularly um, to excuse their actions of hatred, what we do is we put mentally ill people under the bus, right? Um, we add to their stigma, we add to their pain, we add to the fact that they're crazy. Definitely. And uh, I, I guess um, it's, uh, we're going to be moving on to our, our next topic about linguistics and how do we perceive people with accents? And do we normally think of the person with a, a good-sounding, um, I guess, phrase and accent to be linked with the West? And do we equate some accents over others. Um, and I guess, Poppy, I'll, I'll let you go. Yeah, I've been um, yeah, researching a, a bit into this. So, um, you know, various studies have been conducted on the psychology behind accents and race. So we can analyse accents by placing them on a so-called scale. Um, accents which are considered neutral and easy to understand and teach to non-English speakers would be North American Australian and received pronunciation English. Um, accents on the scale which are harder to understand would be Scottish, Indian and Bangladeshi, which I'm sure you can relate to. Um, um, so we associate ethnicity and race with accents. Linguistic profiling is very common in places like the United States within African-American communities. Accent is used to oppress certain groups and make a mockery of their culture and who they are. Um, AAVE, if you're not familiar with the term African-American vernacular English, it was historically used to mock Africans on the way they spoke. Like it was called a really horrible term historically, um, ebonics. Um, whereas now, um, in popular culture, especially because of because of rap culture, AAVE is highly appropriated. It's th- you know you'll you'll hear terms like say on fleek or you know those like something was on point, but you don't necessarily realize that these has these have historical roots and these were used. Um, African-Americans use these to, I guess, try and, like, distinguish themselves from, you know, from their oppressors. So I guess questions that we have, like, I mean, I have here, have you, any of you been, I guess, like, mocked in, you know, for having a certain accent or had, have, like, you know, pe- like, your accent, I guess, like, 
I don't know. It's 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 a thing that people have used to like to, to degrade you. Yeah, absolutely. I would say like my entire time in Australia has probably been marked by that. I mean, that's the first thing you notice about people other than the way they look and their skin is how they speak. So uh, living in Australia without an Australian accent with a completely sort of mixed accent because I've lived, you know, in the Middle East and stuff. Um, that was always sort of like the, the first barrier to being accepted at school or, or wherever. Um, and I think that's that's why I just never, ever ended up calling myself Australian or identifying as Australian because just from a young age, like, it was so clear to me that I was not, you know. So when I first came here, I, you know, when people used to say, where are you from? I'd say Bangladesh. And 25 years later, I said the same thing. Like, I, I don't go into that whole, you know, what is Australian and, you know, I've lived here as long as you have. And I'm just like, yeah, you know what, I guess, I guess I'm not. I mean, something that I, I've noticed that, like, I, you know, all of us, um, I mean, I, I speak two languages. English is my second language, um, but I have an Australian accent. So, um, you know, people find it surprising that I, like, know another language. But when um, I've noticed that, you know, if you meet a white, you know, a white mi- migrant who has a different accent, people are so fascinated by the fact that they, you know, can sp- like, can you say something in, say something in your language? Say something like, in French. Yeah. French is the language oh, of love. Yeah, French is a language of love. Oh, Italian, Spanish, that's so cool. Please tell us something. Whereas accents, say, from, you know, Middle Eastern, Asian accents are sort of seen as inferior and because you know, so many people here speak it. It's not as, it's not, it's not as interesting. And I, I think um, that correlates with Australia being geographically isolated. You know, we don't like, even though Indonesia is our closest neighbour, it's not that, it's not like Indonesia is mandatorily taught in schools. Mm. We, you know, over there, they learn English so they can, I don't know, increase their relations with Australia, but we don't do the same, same for them. It's not a two-way street. It's definitely a, like a one-ended conversation. When we talk about accents... I think we also talk about a measure of assimilation. We talk about the politics of belonging and what Juno Diaz calls the passport um, passport politics. And that includes a process of ex- exclusion. Um, as you can, as was already mentioned, you know, the mockery and everything like that um, for people who have um, non-white accents, for example, or what we imagine are non-white accents. The other thing that comes to my mind is how this is laced with class and access to power. I did not grow up in Australia. I grew up in Saudi Arabia. I lived there for 18 years. I lived in Malaysia for a year, and then I came here. I have an American twang to my accent, not necessarily because I went to an American school or that I was around American people, but because I belong to a particular privileged group of people. And when we speak in English, we speak it with a particular accent. So for me, this is indicative, again, of my assimilation to white supremacy, but also um, (laughs) hopefully the limitations of it. But, um, yeah, definitely, like, the case of power. Um, if you look at other Sri Lankan Filipino people, for example, in Saudi Arabia, who grew up in the same place that I did, the same city, they, will, they might have different accents um, by virtue of whatever class they came from. And I think that also speaks to, um, yeah, just to class and power. Um, when we talk about the mockery of, you know, assumed non-white accents, we look at otherness as below. We, took, we look at otherness as comedic value, which is why we take a mockery out of it. Um, as entertainment, um, it's a bit like I don't want to conflate it to other. Um, sorry, I shouldn't. I shouldn't do that. Forget I even said that. Everybody, just forget I said that. But um, yeah, otherness as trivial, basically. Definitely, I remember getting uh, everyone very surprised that I could speak English well and didn't have some sort of, um, you know, African accent. Whatever the African accent is, there's multiple different accents. But yeah, we're going to be taking a quick music break. We're going to be playing Power Struggle, um, another of Amina's selection. And what does cultural preparation mean? Got no idea. What comes to mind? What was the question? Um, I don't actually know. <laughs> Have you heard like, the term? No. What, what comes to mind when you think of it? Preparing people for understanding cultures. I'm not sure really, maybe just like being ready to be accepting of other cultures and yeah. Like you respect people's culture or like that? Yeah, we're going there. Cultural, like bringing everybody together. What about you? Is that like multiculturalism? Okay, well that's what I think it is. (laughs) Yeah. 
cultural appropriation. Isn't that when things from particular cultures get taken by others? Or something along those lines? When you hear the term. Isn't it like when people, um, they ad like adapt into another culture, like they take elements from another culture and they bring into their own, or is it... What about yeah. I just have no idea. <laughs> cool. I really don't know. What do you think it means? What do you think it means? Um, treating each culture like as they should be treated, just treating everyone the same. I agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cultural appropriation. I don't know. I don't know what that would mean. What comes to mind when you think of it? Something about culture. Well, <laughs> culture, but also probably something that's um that you've got some ownership to it. In the seas of Negros and Cebu felt the ancestors speaking. I'm Luke from Indigenous X, and you're listening to the race car. You're listening to The Race Cut on Sin 90.7 FM and I'm Ahmed Yusuf, your host, um, and we're going to be talking about gentrification. And I get, you're thinking, what is gentrification? What is it? Well, I think this is a, a good starting point to talking to gentrification. Um, a little clip from Boys in the Hood, a popular 90s um, film. So here it is. that sign up there. See what it says? Cash for your home. You know what that is? Bill Belfort. What are y'all, Amos and Andy? Are you stepping and he's fetching? I'm talking about the message, what it stands for. It's called gentrification. It's what happens when the property value of a certain area is brought down. Huh? You listening? Yeah. They bring the property value down. They can buy the land at a lower price. Then they move all the people out, raise the property value, and sell it at a profit. And what we need to do is we need to keep everything in our neighborhood, everything, black. Black owned with black money. Just like the Jews, the Italians, the Mexicans, and the Koreans do. And that was from Boys in the Hood and uh, Gentrification. What is it? Uh, that was a little taste of what we'll be talking about. And Amina, uh, we have um, Z Rodriguez on the line. Hello, Z, you still there? Yeah, I'm here. What's cracking? So Gentrification... I guess what were you, what was your um, initial thoughts of gentrification? When were you first hit with the idea of gentrification? I guess my thoughts on it come from my lived experience of the situation. Um, so yeah, I'm actually from Oakland, California, which is right next to San Francisco. And um, you know, I've heard of the term when I was younger and had the general concept, but uh, only when I tried to move back to Oakland after graduating college did I really see it in front of my face and see the experience of it. Um, as soon as I got into college, I thought about moving to San Francisco because it was the closest city, and I really liked being there a lot. And um, it was pretty clear it was unaffordable right away. Um, and, yeah, then I thought about moving back to my hometown in Oakland, and when I tried doing that, I found it really hard to find a place that was affordable and just really hard to get a place in general. And, um, yeah, you know, sleeping on couches and... Um, yeah, it became, and I had a lot of other friends who had moved to Oakland at the same time from college who were all white and middle to upper class, and they did not seem to have any issues uh, finding places, finding jobs, and making things happen for them. And, um, yeah, it kind of became clear to me that some people are part of the process of gentrification, some aren't, and, you know, being a low-income person, I needed to live in a low-income place, but, um, you know, where things are geared towards people without money. But, yeah, I couldn't move to those places because they were rapidly disappearing. Um, and I actually moved to Australia in part to have a better standard of living because I just couldn't make a living there anymore. Um, I've been working for minimum wage for years and couldn't even pay the rent with that. So Right, V. So when you talk about this, right, I think I'm getting a sense of displacement, which seems to disproportionately affect people of color, particularly those who are low socioeconomic status, right? Um so when gentrification happens, where do displaced communities go? So what happens to the cultures of these places as well? 
Yeah, I mean, it's um, pretty sad because people kind of scatter everywhere and usually try to build new enclaves and new groups in different places. And even when I was young, I a bunch of my friends moved to this um, other town pretty far away, and I found out that everyone in their neighborhood was people who moved from our old neighborhood. The whole neighborhood basically moved over to a new town. Um, and in the U.S., a lot of people are just ending up either just because the poverty is getting worse, like crunching with family members, you know, so having 10, 15 people in a house, or uh, just to stay in the same city or moving out of the state entirely. Um, and here I understand that, like, I think people are moving to country places, but I haven't really met people of color who are really sort of um, part of that. And I guess with the culture, it's sad because it changes very deeply and rapidly, and a lot of those connections are lost. And when people have their own neighborhoods, they're able to build deep connections with each other and support each other. And um, once everyone's scattered, it's really hard to build that up again. Right. And so when we are talking about this, like as you talk about it, actually, I'm thinking about spatial politics. You know, the question of belonging um, plays out here. So who gets to lay claim to space? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on who you ask, right? Like in uh, the Bay Area in the last um, few months, it's all these news stories have came out. Like some of you all might have heard of the tech bros who tried to use the app to book a soccer field and kick these younger kids off of it, you know, that's a battle for space and who's going who's gonna to be able to use the parks now, you know, like whose right is it to use the parks? And a couple of days ago in Oakland, there was an altercation where people were drumming, um, a bunch of people of color who had been drumming for years in this park and a white guy came and assaulted them and called the police on them for drumming during the daytime. Um, and so that's part of the culture being, you know, taken away and erased. Right. Um, yeah. And um, I understand that you're living in Footscray now, so we obviously don't have to look very far when we talk about gentrification because it happens in our own backyard, right? I mean, now that you've moved to Australia, you you probably see that. So, what can be done about it? You know, how do we address it? Yeah, I guess I've I've tried to do consciousness raising myself. Um, I did a zine on it called "When Miley Cyrus and Malcolm Moore Moved to Your Neighborhood," and it's uh, yeah, talking about challenging white people and white people in different subcultures to challenge their ideas on gentrification. Um, and I think be, I think a lot of it's people with privilege challenging themselves and acknowledging it, because I don't see a lot of people, especially in Australia, do not acknowledge they have any sort of class or race privilege at all or that it has any sort of in-play in society. Um, and I think also people organizing on a massive scale, because you're confronting capitalism, you know, this is the big years, like, you know, displacing people, using police violence to do that real estate, like, and so I think targeting the banks that are involved, um, landlords that are involved, and sort of trying to change government policies, but that's going to come from the street, you know, you're not going to be able really to go to politicians going to do that for you. Right. Uh, um, yeah. So, you know, a few couple of days ago, um, serial killer, serial, like, you know, the serial that you eat, um, is a white hipster cafe um, that propped up in East London, and that was attacked by, you know, anti-gentrification people around the neighborhood. And the media portrayed these people, you know, as they were thugs and they were criminals and they were crazy or whatever. And to me, this strikes more as reclaiming space. So I'm thinking, do you know of any movements that are happening, any communi community um, efforts to reclaim space? I guess I haven't heard of anything in Melbourne um... But I did, when I first moved here, there was a thing where the city was going to sell off the land that was on um, council homes, like commission flats, and sell them at cost. Or not at cost, but, you know, for sort of market price and get rid of all the parks and the housing commissions. And there was organizing amongst tenants to stop that. And that's a process of gentrification I see as well. Like, they tried to do the same thing in New York City where they were selling all the park land that people had to play with who were part of these housing commissions just to make a profit for real estate developers. But um, I guess in the U.S. and San Francisco and Oakland, there's a lot of resistance going on. People have been blocking the Google buses because tech workers are one of the main drivers of gentrification. And um, the CEOs of these tech companies are usually the ones who are buying up a lot of the real estate and evicting a lot of low-income tenants. People have been actually targeting the tech companies um, and specific businesses that have really bad policies. Um, like anti-homeless policies, the police in the U.S. are pretty brutal and the gentrification um, measures, you know, things like stop and frisk in New York is part of that, and people have been organizing against that. And I think a lot of the sort of police murders of black and brown people in the U.S. is tied to gentrification because often it's in gentrifying cities and neighborhoods where these murders are taking place. 
Um, talking about Footscray before, I know a number of African businesses uh, are, are struggling to keep their business afloat with uh, Footscray heavily being gentrified as we speak, like right now. Um, and I know from speaking to a few business owners, they're trying to come together as kind of like a um, a coalition of sorts to help buy out um, a number of, uh, of, of, of shops. I know the Footscray Mall that was going to be um, going to be, uh, I guess, renovated for for flats and and some some other things has been entirely bought by um, the. No, it's a good thing, Ahmed. It's a good thing. African businesses on the bottom floor. Mm. So all those businesses that are presently being um, occupied with African businesses are going to continue to be, um, and those businesses after, especially after the the mall gets renovated. So do you think this is a sense of hope that? Um, I guess people that are now collectivizing and and trying to work together to stop the gentrification of of I guess community hubs. Yeah, I mean I hadn't heard about that, but that sounds pretty cool, and it does sound like yeah, people are organizing and banding together, and it seems like a yeah route to go that I haven't really heard before, and yeah, it seems like a tactic that's working for them, so that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, it is hopeful that more things are happening. I guess I haven't. Yeah, when I moved here, I haven't heard of anyone really talking about gentrification, and so that's really cool to hear. But I think people are talking about it now, especially in Footscray. It seems like all of Melbourne is being swallowed up by high rent prices. Definitely. I know, Ame, you were talking about Brunswick, and, and just um, when, you were in, when you were growing up in Brunswick, how readily it changed, and you saw the first cafe pop up that looked a bit hipster. Yeah, yeah no, I didn't grow up in Brunswick, but I lived there like in my early early 20s, and so, yeah, one of the first hipster cafes popped up across the street from me. And, um, yeah, it was just so obvious at the time that it just was not there to cater to anyone who lived around it. You know, it was, the prices were too high. There was no effort to engage with, you know, any of the different cultures that were in the neighborhood. And, um, you know, the couple of times I tried to walk in there, I was asked immediately whether I wanted to take away. Like, it was just, it was just so blatant. Um, but that's, you know, I mean, that's that's not even unusual in Brunswick now. I guess, V, do you, what do you think are the first signs of uh, gentrification? Do you think that, like, um, someone moving in that one cafe and then suddenly it pops up that a number of cafes that are highly priced, coffee like $5, um, uh, I guess, pastries up to $9, $10, and, and suddenly you can't afford to go to the milk bar anymore? Yeah, I mean, I guess what I think is sort of the first signs is, and this is what I wrote a whole zine on, um, but it's about people from these sort of underground white subcultures moving in, and I think it's a really, like, important key step in it. So, like, when you have punks or anarchists or artists or et cetera, et cetera, queer folks who are moving into a neighborhood that is low income, and they're usually the first ones to start the ball rolling and really choose that neighborhood because the reality is, is people ha- actually have a lot more privilege than the people in those neighborhoods. Same with Footscray. A lot of people here are immigrants or have, you know, visas that don't allow them to work as much, et cetera, et cetera, and have a lot of barriers to employment. But a lot of people who are moving here are artists, college students, people who do have a fair amount of privilege. Um, I think that's usually the first step. And then there's businesses that cater to them. And usually those people don't actually shop at the local shops and they'll happily go to, you know, a hip cafe instead. And I think that makes it safer for other white people and for richer people because they see the neighborhood as edgy now instead of just a ghetto. And you need those sort of, you know, subcultural white people to make it familiar and palatable for everyone else. Right. Thank you so much for talking to us, V. Yeah, thanks for having me. All good. And for our listeners out there, V. Rodriguez is an artist, activist, DJ, zine maker, and photographer from Oakland, California. They are a proud queer Chicano and recent immigrant to Australia. Um, the projects usually revolve around issues concerning class, race, immigration, and gender. And you can see some of their photography and hear some of their radio shows at felonyfrequencies.tumblr.com. And I guess that's our show for um, this uh, this week. Um, thanks, Ame, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And thank you, Amina and Poppy, for your contributions. Uh, I guess you can you can find the, the race card on... Uh, uh, on Twitter at the race card, you can find our Mixcloud page, uh, mixcloud.com forward slash Medusa10. You can find the uh, iTunes, find us on iTunes, 
by searching um, Race Card and the podcast Republic app as well for Android users. Search Race Card. Um, please, you know, like our Facebook page, share our posts, and get involved in our conversation. We love suggestions and getting your voices involved. Right, and I think the Facebook URL is facebook.com/slash Race Card Show. So if you type that in, you can probably find us. Yes, thank you. I forgot that. Oh, good. It's a All team right. effort. This is a team effort. All right. Uh, we'll- Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.